Dr. Diana, you, you have such a full and long bio, right? Because you're extremely accomplished. I'm going to make the bio brief, but I just want to really jump into this, if you don't mind. Because, you know, folklorist, visual artist, curator, uh, you're with Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, a professor, um, you've done groundbreaking work, and there's some, that's what we're going to get into. Um, please, my question, my first question, your journey. How did you get into folklore? Who, what introduced you? What was your journey? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny because um, I always tell people that I fell into folklore backwards, <laughs> uh, because I started out as a visual artist. Well, I started out actually being interested in in design and fashion design. Okay. And you know, when I was really little, um, I went to um, I when I was five months old. As a matter of fact, um, my um, parents were in the states. They were actually immigrants from Barbados and Guyana, and they were working. And you know how folks um, uh, send their kids down south to be with the grandparents? Yes. Well, I got sent to Bermuda because that was where the elders in my family were. Wow. And while my dad was in school and my mom was working and that kind of thing. So, um, So that was like my first school, my first birthday, all of that took place in Bermuda. And um, so when I came to the, to the States, to back to the States, to New York, to Brooklyn, it was like, that was my first kind of cultural, I, I want to say disruption, but it was like, you know, I was a stranger in a strange land, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, um, there was, um, you know, I had a, a, a lot to learn. And um, I think that that's important in terms of the journey because that was the whole thing where I started to think, oh, well, people eat different stuff. And, you know, um, the, the kind of traditions of my family were slightly different, but we were all black people, you know. Right. And, and at that time, you know, you were either black or white or you were in that category, people said Oreo. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew I was an Oreo. I knew I wasn't white. So, but then there was things that, that, um, you know, I didn't really understand. And I think that the journey towards folklore started with noticing um, that uh, the family, that there was a lot of, I guess, diversity Right. In the black community. Right. Like right. some people, you know, ate, um, ate some kind of foods and some other people ate other kind of foods, you know. And um, so uh, and this kind of was a question in the back of my mind all the time. And as I said, I was I really, really loved making things from the time I was really little. Right. And uh, so the. um the only kind of um, making stuff that I that I really learned, because my 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 the elders in my family they always had a needle and thread with them, 
you know. Ah, oh, okay. And there was this when there was this place, Mrs. Francis Sewing School that I went to and, you know, and so that was really natural for me. And the only thing that I thought of, okay, was, well, with fashion design, you know, I, I made my own clothes and, you know, that kind of thing wow. um, all the way up through high school. And um, uh, this is all relevant to folklore, by the way. No, I, I know it is. I know it is. <laughs> so so um, my mom had a dry cleaning store and I was the repair lady. Oh. My mom said, you know, you have to work after school. You have to, you know, everybody had their role. Right. And so I used to like take up hems and men busted zippers and that kind of stuff. And then um, I got the opportunity when I was in high school to work with uh, Zelda Wynn Valdez, who was an amazing a couturier, um, black couturier. She had a um, a shop on Fifty Seventh Street, mm. which in broad and Broadway. Oh. And she she did things like she was on the cover of Life because she did Eartha Kitt's Paris wardrobe. Now Eartha Kitt is going to Paris, which wow. is a place supposedly of high fashion, and she sewed her entire wardrobe to go to Paris. She wow. uh, sewed for Gladys Knight and the Pip. She sewed Mae West's first sequin gown, and she invented the bunny, <laughs> the, the Playboy bunny outfit. Wow. So, but when she retired, she went to um, her first retirement, she went to a place called Haruac, which was an arts and culture program for young people. And as I said, I had the good fortune to be one of her students there. And um, so that was where, you know, I learned a lot about design. I learned a lot about fashion. We had to make our own collections, all of that stuff. So, um, but then um, uh, my parents were worried about me um, going into the Seventh Avenue design world and all that kind of stuff. So they said, no, you can get a liberal arts degree. And I remember specifically, then you can be a garbage collector, but you got to go to college. You got to go. <laughs> so I went to school. They didn't have, um, they didn't have fashion because I wasn't in the art program. And so I ended up picking anthropology because I figured that way I could learn about the clothing of the world. Right. And, wow. And, you know, at the time, art history might have been something, but they didn't teach anything about black people in art I, history. I, I just have to tell you about four things on the list that I wanted to talk to you about. You've already brought up already. So this is going well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. let me let me ask. There's a couple of things that I want to touch on. Um sure. But just based on what you just said, right? Huh? One, the fact that uh, one of the things that I want to touch on that you already mentioned, the quote-unquote black culture, tradition, behavior, expression is not monolithic, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, two, there is a trajectory of tradition of blacks in the space of dry cleaning, tailor, fashion, and things of this nature, right? That's right. That's right. And and the way you went about it is where I would like you to start and then try to intertwine those other things in. Okay. 
you had the brilliant idea because what it sounds like you said you came into it backwards, but you understood that our discipline, the many uh, methods, right, and 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 in oh. departments of our discipline allows the study and research of the purpose of some of these attires. Is this what I'm getting? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 actually, um, you know, the the reason why I said I came into it backwards because I did not know that there was such a discipline as folklore. When I came you know, um, I didn't realize that what I was doing was folklore. Mm. And it was funny because, um, okay, let's fast forward a little bit. And my first job as a curator was at a small independent black museum, no longer exists, called the Muse Community Museum. Mm. And uh, I was the curator. Um, we had a, an executive director, a curator, exhibition director. And, and then it was uh, something that was put together when uh, the Brooklyn Children's Museum uh, had a temporary home in Brooklyn on Lincoln Place. And then they, um, when they left, the community said, we want something, we want something for us. We want something permanent. So it became... The, the Muse Community Museum of Brooklyn. And it was okay. history as well as arts. And they had amazing people there. Um, uh, it was, they had jazz musicians, you know, like Randy Weston was there. And I mean, all in, incredible people. And they had a planetarium there, which was amazing. And they had a, a little, they kept, uh, they had a little animal menagerie but they also had an exhibition space and so um i think the very first thing that um i did when i got there i got really interested in african-american quilting traditions and this was in 1980 mm. uh 81 and we did a show called um african-american Quilt works, a continuing tradition. Part of partly because I was a quilter, right? <laughs> and, and, and partly because I had been exposed uh, through my stepmom to who had worked in Georgia and the Freedom Schools and so on to uh, the tradition from um, that everybody, a lot of people know now, part as part of G's, you know, G's Ben, but also the African American quilting tradition and Roland Freeman have to give him his props because he was the one, the first one to, to really start interviewing these ladies. And, and then G's Ben came out of his research. Ah, okay. So, um, and then people started, you know, looking at that. He did a, um, a book called Something to Keep You Warm. And it was part of his work. And, but anyway, um, uh, so... We uh, looked at quilters. There was a quilting group at a senior citizen center in Brooklyn, and there were quilters around. And, and actually, there were folks like Joyce Scott, um, uh, amazing artist Joyce Scott and her mother, uh, Elizabeth Scott, and, and um, uh, Faith Ringgold, was, uh, her mother was alive. And so we had this um, wonderful 
conversation between quilters and, and they were all there talking about how their art practice was influenced by the work of their mothers. So it was like com combining that. And we had also traditional quilters, we had contemporary quilters, uh, Michael Cummings, um, a lot of folks that people would now recognize in the art world, but also people who were um, very much in the traditional quilting world. Um, so anyway, um, and I guess so that was that was a folklore, you know, or moment. Yes. You yeah. know? Let, let me ask you a question. Speaking uh -huh. of quilting, those in the tradition of quilting, what quilting means um, specifically in this uh, program to African-Americans and black people, but as a whole, I always come back to how the term obscure, I think, is misused in our discipline. And this is definitely, you know, I, I don't work to critique the discipline at all, but mm -hmm. I noticed that word is used often. And you stated that today, a lot of these people you mentioned are big in the art world, but yesterday, not so much they would have been referred to as obscure. Do you think that does a disservice using that term, even though they were carrying on the things passed down to them that was beneficial and actually humongous to their their, their immediate, uh, I guess, folk group for that matter? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's like the whole term discover, you know, <laughs> because, you know, discover has usually mean, meant that, um, white folks have become aware of this, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but actually, you know, the community, there are very much people, you know, who were important in the community, whether it be, you know, in terms of the the, the artists, um, the community of Brooklyn or, or Baltimore or, you know, where they, wherever they were, Harlem for, for, um, for Faith Ringgold or, you know, and, and, um, but, and also the, the, the uh, women who were the traditional quilters, they were very much, they were also activists. Mm. You know, um, uh, the, um, many of them were very much involved in, this, in the struggle for civil rights. And uh, there were the Freedom Quilters Guild. Wow. And um, what happens is that uh, quilting is also a way that people were able to uh, come together and bond and, as well as deal with some of the, uh, both the trauma and the joy, you know, the joy of our arts, but also the stuff that was going on, you know. Um, um, and um, it's, it's, a, it's a very old practice um, and dealing and using fabrics that were around that were reclaimed from clothing and from, from scraps and things like that. You know, people were using what they had. And so there were these traditions like quilting for, you know, for women, there were um, also woodworking, you know, a lot of the woodworking traditions that um, African-American men had both in, uh, in the South and in the, Caribbean, um, these skills were very important um, to building 
the places where they were. You know, I said African American craftspeople built America. You know, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and, and and that gets lost sometimes, but but um, at the same time, they were also building the pews for the church, right? And right. they were building stuff, for, and they were helping each other out to build their homes. Again, um, very important tradition. Um, I know that um, there was a tradition in Bermuda where, um, you know, you would get your buddies to to help you to build your house. And then when you were about to get, um, well, when they were about to get married, you had to help them build their house and you know, it, would, it would just go on. And right. uh, so, um, and the skills were mad skills, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I worry about how with, you know, uh, people moving to the North, sometimes some, a lot of these skills were, were lost or with people, people, people right. getting organized. And, and then, um, there was a time when um, the, I guess around the, the, the world wars, um, uh, there were a lot of folks coming in from Poland, from, from Germany, from, who also had you know, skills, and then from Italy, and then black people got locked out of these, these trade right. unions and these you know, guilds and things like that. That's right. And then eventually a lot of it got lost. So, I mean, if I'm, if you think here, I'm passionate about this stuff. I, I think it's so important that we regain this, that we document people who are still involved. Yes. And again, coming back to folklore, you know, and document the stories that, that uh, folks have to tell around, uh, around the, um, these skills and, and right. these crafts and these art forms. Right. Well, you know, again, you, you said a plethora of things that <laughs> really are hitting home. You know, first, one of the, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about, if please correct me if I'm incorrect, a uh, short story I think was written by Toni Morrison, maybe, yeah. about the girl who went home and wanted to quilt. That's right. Yeah, I, I was like, what? you know, this, this is so beautiful. And then when you said uh, our, our our people from the South and the Carib, it, it, it's so mind boggling because I was able to spend a lot of time in the South because that's where my people are from. But I grew up not far from the museum you're talking about on Nostrand Avenue in Crown Heights. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Right. So I used to go there as a child. But the point I'm getting to is the vernacular and dialect of the Carib West Indian is equivalent and extremely reflective of the Southern Black. It is amazing, especially when you listen to blues. Um, yeah. So now, I was going to wait to ask you this question, right? But based on what you're describing, I think it's, it's a good time to ask you to, to share with us what ethno-aesthetics is. <laughs> okay, so um, let me start with aesthetics, okay? Okay. So aesthetics is the combination of values and beliefs that have to do with beauty. 
you know, and, and um, it comes out, you know, what do we think is beautiful? What do we think is, you know, what does our community as a whole, what does a group think of as beautiful? And what are the values that people think of when they think of something, an object or something like that is, that's beautiful. Okay. And, and um, ethno aesthetics is just that different groups, different communities have different senses of what is beautiful. And um, I guess how I've applied the, the term is um, in regard to dress. And uh, so that um, this is both, it's about different communities have different senses of, you know, what's beautiful, what's appropriate, what values you put on how, how you dress and how you groom yourself, you know, yes, and, yes. and getting to the, the um, kind of diversity within the African-American community even, and the Afro, you know, the large global African community, we right. have a lot of diversity in there. Yes, and <laughs> you know, the thing is that the, um, uh, it's both generational um, but also, you know, where we come from, you know, what part of the world, what part of the, the, the country we come from. Yes, ma'am. And, um, and they're really, you can get real subtle with this, you know, <laughs> but you can also get kind of, kind of large. And I'm just talking about the, uh, the black community. I'm not talking about even the larger American population. Right. Because that's a whole thing. And we do influence, you know, we do influence everything. But I was thinking about, um, oh, gosh, what's the brother who sings Freedom? Uh, New Orleans um, just came out with with this video. Um, Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember. Oh, no. Ah, it'll come back to me. Well, you know what? That's a good segue while we're trying to remember because Zora Neale Hurston is a lot of our favorites, right? Yes. Yeah, patron <laughs> So you, I think you know where I'm going with this. Based Again, perfect segue, because you were inspired by a line in one of her writings to create an entire project. Could you, could you, could you talk about it? Give us the name first, and then talk to us about it, and what inspires you? Sure. Well, Zora Neale Hurston uh, talked about the will to adorn being, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, being one of the most important parts of African-American aesthetic culture. And when she talked about it, she talked about it in a lot of ways. We love to embellish the way we talk. We love to embellish the way we dress. I mean, we, we adorn all sorts of things. We adorn our music, the way, we, you know, that, that we... Uh, do that. So I love the idea, uh, the will to adorn. And uh, so it inspired the project that I've worked on now for about 10 years, the will to adorn and the, um, the um, aesthetics of identity mm. of African-American identity, because um, I think that one of the, I, well, I, Thor Neil Hurston was was right, obviously, and um, 
you know, we have a lot of different aesthetics. I started figuring, I started asking the question, you know, is there such a thing as an African-American aesthetic of dress? And what I realized as we were doing the research, and we did it in, we initially started in nine cities, mm. that there are many aesthetics of dress, but the things in terms of the value has to do with asserting our freedom, asserting our identity. Mm. And um, the other thing is that we, we talk through our dress. Right. You know? um, and everybody from uh, the ladies at church with the beautiful big hats to the, you know, the young brothers who are, well, now they, they used to wear their pants sagging. Yes. You know, <laughs> uh, to, um, and, and it changes through time and it changes through, um, uh, as I said, through region. But we love to dress. It's a thing for us. And the way we wear our hair, you know, and, and what is so interesting is I think it's been recognized. You know, there have been, first of all, there were the sumptuary laws. Right. Um, explain to those who don't know, please. Okay. Um, there were actually laws passed in the South. I think there were some in New Orleans. There were other places, too, where enslaved people were forbidden from dressing as good as, as well as the people who were enslaved them, enslaving them. Wow. And there were laws, for example, with um, the ladies of, of New Orleans, the Creole ladies of New Orleans, they said that they couldn't wear their hair out because it was too attractive to the enslaving men. You know? So they came up with these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful head wraps that were just as lovely and elaborate and so it was, it was a kind of resistance there, right? Yes, ma'am. And that spirit of resistance also exists when, you know, when uh, during the 70s, when uh, with the Black Power Movement, people first started wearing their hair natural and wearing the Afro. I right. mean, that was, that was the first wave. There's another wave now, but that was the first wave. And then... When people were wearing, um, when women were wearing braids, and actually men as, as well started to wear braids, I mean, it was an assertion of a connection to Africa. It was connection to, it was an assertion of identity, a way of defining ourselves at, in a way and defining our beauty in a, in a way that was ours alone. And, um, there were lawsuits that were uh, created to stop women from wearing their hair in braids. There were lawsuits from here. Um, uh, in fact, very recently, even in the army. That's you know, what I'm about to ask you. Is this recent time? Yeah. Yeah. This came up to recent times. And so, um, you know, there had to be things like the Crown Act. Mm. Which is an act to that will that allows uh, that is recent legislation that uh, to allow lack of discri or to forbid discrimination based on 
hairstyle? You know, I have to say you're a natural <laughs> because you, you, you bring up legislation. So I have to ask you, considering your work also is predicated to cultural policy, right? Mm-hmm. Please talk to so 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 the the not just the study of but the I guess fight for or activism of cultural tradition allows folklorists into the space of government and legislation. Exactly. Very very importantly. So um, uh, because um, tradition again. Um, the kind of the expressive culture is a way of asserting ourselves, a way of self-definition, a way of um, creating that important space, honoring the black body, honoring, you know, and, 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 and honoring the food we eat, you know, the, all of these things that have to do with, um, maintaining heritage, but also maintaining heritage means maintaining bonds between community, means uh, education um, of young people. It means honoring elders, but it also, you know, has real consequences for, um, for education, for psychology, for dealing with trauma, for dealing with, with keeping, um, with, with what I like to call spiritual marinage. Um, because, you know, the Maroons were able to, um, um, from the 17th to the 19th century, uh, they were able to get away from slavery, uh, sometimes by going um, uh, into less accessible places and then fighting for the, for the territory. Right. And this happened everywhere. This happened, you know, with the, with the Afro Seminoles, it happened, you know, who also made linkages with the, with uh, native communities and, and were able to sustain and even get treaties about not being re you know, re-enslaved and that kind of thing. But in, um, so that actual marinage was, the for the ability to govern oneself to uh, maintain a sense of culture a sense of religion a sense of um of thought that was independent so uh how i see it spiritual marinage is the continuing assertion of identity and affirmation of um of african-american global global African identity um, and assertion of those traditions and that knowledge and those stories and that experience that is part of our communal legacy. Mm. And Mm. folklorists, because we document these stories and because we document these traditions have a really important role to play uh, because this is part of the, this is part of that history. This is part of you know if it goes away, it goes away. You know, right, right. And, um, and so, um, in a cultural policy space, it's um, these things are so important for cultural resilience 
that uh, they affect all other aspects of, of life, including, I mean, look at the music space. Right. You know, I mean, that's a big, big space there. Yes. And um, the fact that um, people are, you know, recognizing jazz as, for instance, as um, uh, an American music, but where that comes from. Right, right. Comes out of an African-American tradition. I mean, these things are important. And if kids don't learn that, they come thinking that they don't have anything. Right. See, and, and that's the thing, right? So here's a couple of questions that I ask every uh, Black folklorist, folklorist of color that I encounter, whether on record or off. Uh, because and, and, and the answer is usually either I came into it backwards or I came into it by default. Uh-huh. We, we, so I, there's an, um, a textbook in African-American studies written by a, um, a brilliant man, The Discipline of African-American Studies, right? It breaks down the different disciplines that encapsulates this study. Sociology, anthropology, ethnography, psychology, all of these ologies, but uh-huh. folklore is not in it. Yeah. yeah My question yeah. is, is the term folk does the term folklore have a negative connotation to those of the diaspora because it was something that's utilized more by Western civilization, just the term itself. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that's been, that has been um, a, uh, an issue. That has been an issue. I mean, um, just to, just to, uh, you put how I did actually end up in folklore there, because I think that that's a thing. Because I think that I was, you know, my my bachelor's, my master's, and part of my PhD was in was in anthropology. By the time I did my PhD, it was anthropology and and folklore. But um, again, didn't know that it existed. A lot of the ways that uh, folk, the word folk, is used uh, initially was demeaning. You know, was 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 in a space that, you know, these, um, it was utilized in a way that um, it connoted kind of folks that were, um, I'm going to say back in a shack, barefoot in a Right, you know, yeah, backwood, yeah, primitive. That's the word, right, primitive. Right. Exactly, and um, I think that the way that you know the the discipline started, um, um, it was people looking at those things that are gonna that are passing away. The like the folkways. It was it was not only the folk the 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 art of the people, but it was the art of the poor backwards people, right? You know, I think right. that that was the connotation that one of the connotations that people had. The second connotation was that it was only about storytelling, and that it was, but it was a storytelling that um, 
was kind of a performative storytelling in a way. I mean, a theatrical yes. uh, storytelling. Yes. You know, a lot of people think of Zora Neale Hurston as, you know, a degree having a degree in folk in, in anthropology, but she was actually working as a folklorist. Right. And, <laughs> and um, so, you know, there, there's kind of that muddiness be, between the fields, but I see, you know, folklore is, um, could be said to be the anthropology of expressive culture, but could be said to be um, the, the study of narrative, you know, and, and there's all these things here. I, I think that it's really important for young people to claim folklore as a, fe- young black people to claim folklore as a field and to see all the things that the field has to share and all the, the, the kind of technologies of, of the discipline because there's a lot of richness there. And it's, you know, people like, um, well, starting with Zora Neale, but also Catherine Morgan, you know, Children of Strangers and, 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 and uh, Gladys Marie Fry and um, uh, Beverly Robinson, Gerald Davis, you know, all of these folks who are our, our ancestors, you know, right, and who, right. um, in the field. I think that their work uh, needs to be a lot more publicized. But I, I agree, folklore, African-American folklorist has not gotten the kind of attention that um, that it should have within African-American communities. It's, I mean, Julius Lester, you know, was a folklorist, you know. I mean, there's all these folks, um, uh, Bill Wiggins, I mean, all of these folks were, were doing incredible work. Um, so I think it's a matter of, as African-American folklorists, us publicizing the field and, and letting people know more about it. And, and um, there's also the thing about, uh, which I think is very important, is the idea of um, community self-documentation. Just you know, teaching that um, I think it's important that, yeah, that we're teaching it in the schools, but it's important that we're teaching it in the communities too. Absolutely. So, so that's the other thing that I guess has been important to me throughout my career um, is making sure that um people within communities have the skills to document what's going on and to make archives and to make their own, um, 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 I guess what is called now is autoethnography. I mean, right. like terms. Right. Right. The, that, that is the, uh, the technical uh, method. Now, well, let, speaking of, of of community, because you you work with a Smithsonian folk life, you worked with and a lot of people and organizations. You've done a lot of great work. I just have to say that. I don't know if I say that to you enough. Um, cultural representation is what we're kind of talking about now, exactly. and, and I wanted to ease into this because I'm careful not to. I don't want people who don't have malice in their mythology to think I'm speaking about them. However, it is a noted 
truth, right? That it is usually the study of black folk, whether it's in America or across the globe, is predicated in regards to other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's usually the other studying us with a, a, a preconceived notion. Yeah. That's how right. did you, so, so how did you go about, because it, we, we got, we got to mention the elephant in the room. You yeah. are a woman, you are a black woman in a space that was really not black, even when you were came into it. And and you're pushing for cultural representation, but you know, like they say, folk music is the music by the people. So you're pushing for the voice of the people in a space where it was a whole bunch of others giving their depiction of what they think this is. How was that? Oh wow. <laughs> That's a whole story right there. You know, um, I think I talked about this and I'm not going to name some names, but I talked about it a while ago about being told that, first of all, that um, folks didn't believe in people from the culture representing their own culture because they'd be biased. You know, I heard that recently. <laughs> oh, Lord. See that? And, um, you know, as if the folks from outside the culture are going to be neutral, are going to be, you know, non-biased. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, um, I remember when I started the um, I, the first uh, kind of participatory um, uh, ethnography or participatory folklore project I did was uh, actually called the African Immigrant Project. Mm. And it was a time when there were not, there, you know, people were starting to come over as part of the second diaspora for the first time. And um, it, I mean, the Cape Verdeans had been there 75 years. I'm talking about what was voluntary or economically driven or um, uh, migration. Right. And um, I mean, folks would come over from the Caribbean as well. But, but you know, I was really interesting, interested in um, how, you know, what happens in terms of the transfer of culture when folks are coming over on their own and in, 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 in new communities. And um, I guess I had a front seat because, you know, I remember when my, my family came over from the West Indies and there were things that we brought over or my family brought over that um, that and continued with a template from home, a mental template from you know home, meaning back in the Caribbean. Right. And so, and then um, my husband was from Senegal, and I was really interested because um, I saw the same pattern happening there. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, in fact, he was the one who coined the term the vertical village. Like in New York, um, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a time when there were a lot of the Senegalese vendors on the. I do the, remember that. Okay, and there were a few uh, people, and they would actually live in a, in an apart, take over one of the SROs 
downtown. Yes, ma'am. And every floor you went to, there was something else. There was the barber. There was the, the restaurant. There was, you know, a lady who, who would cook Senegalese food. And then the guys, when they came back from, from vending, they could have food from home. And she would set up like a pay-per-view TV <laughs> in the room so that they could see the, the news from home. But then also they were also doing other things like um, they would have, um, you know, many Senegalese, 93% of the Senegalese population is Sufi Muslim. So they would have Thursday evening uh, get-togethers for chanting, you know, religious chants and things like that. Or they would have weddings and, you know, well, that was when women started to come. You know, they would they'd have tailors. They'd have all these people in the community that you knew if you were in the community. Right. And I said, wow, this is important. And, and it turns out that it was happening in, in the various Ethiopian communities. It was happening in the various Nigerian communities, of which there were all many different you know, ethnic communities right. within that too. And I said, well, wow, you know, but people need to be documenting this, but need to be documenting it themselves. So the idea was to set up study groups of folks from each community to be able to, to do that. And, um, oh gosh, there's so many stories about that, but, <laughs> but um, including when I'm working for the Smithsonian, which is a, um, you know, white institution. And, you know, I was the only, um, you know, African-American folklorist at the center who was employed, you know, on a regular basis. I mean, there's some wonderful people who have worked and continue yeah. to work. Yes. Smithsonian, including uh, Mark Perrier and, 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 um, Gosh, uh, Phyllis May Machunda, she came before me. She was, you know, uh, and of course, the great Bernice Johnson Reagan. I mean, there's incredible Camila Bright support, a lot of folks. But in terms of uh, the time when I was doing this, this, uh, this work, like the first thing I would get was, well, okay, what's this for? What's Sonia going to do with our stuff? You know, why are you doing this? You know, what do you want to get? You know, they want to find out stuff about us. And this is the government. And, you know, I mean, and basically what I had to say, and this is this has come up again recently, too, is that the Smithsonian really does not, as writ large, um, they are not the ones doing this. If it's going to be documented, if you're going to be represented culturally, you're going to have to do it yourselves or we're going to have to do it ourselves, you know? Right. Right. Way right. That want to do it. So it's not about that. And it's about gaining those skills and, and taking that, that documentation where we need to take it for, for, for the community, for the building of the community. Right. And for passing it down. And it is the repository that belongs to the entire nation. So it's, you know, it's, it's in trust for, you know, the Smithsonian is an institution that that does this documentation and trust. So we have a right to make sure that our stories and our stories as told by ourselves are there. Right. As told by ourselves. Right. Because right, that right. Is, is put placed in the proper context, which um, leads me to my next question. I know you have to go. I don't want to hold you too long, but 
you know, I was speaking to, um, I don't remember if she was an archivist or a curator here, and I was looking for something specific. There was a white lady at the um, archival part of the library here, and um, she said, unfortunately, not many African Americans uh, give us things to to archive or hold, so I wouldn't have much, you know. And I walked away saying to myself, initially, it's a shame, but then I had to think a little bit longer. There has to be a reason why black folk, for the lack of better, to keep it as broad as possible, don't trust certain institutions with this story. Yeah, because, I mean, the story has gotten distorted so many times, has been told wrong so many times, have been, you know, um, there's so many instances, even within our field, within folklore, where, where that has happened. I mean, there's been great work done. Yes. By, you know, there are folks who've been very conscientious and who, who, I really um, think have have done wonderful work, and um, but there's also a lot of distortion and 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 um, kind of getting the story wrong, or, or you know, at 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 worst, you know, using it as a way to um, to look at black people to exoticize, right. Folks. And, and so on. But, you know, I think that that this is one of the reasons why more more African-Americans need to be in the field. And I, I, I do have to say that um, one of my first formal my formal entry into the field in New York was, you know, I was at the Muse and um, Robert Barron at um, uh, he was setting up the folk. Uh, the folk arts program at New York State Council on the Arts mm. and um, asked me to come on to to um, help, you know, to, to help build that department. And I was there for um, about five years. And, um, you know, there haven't been as many people in that space as possible. We ended up doing uh, some really interesting things. First of all, it was a great, and this is my plug for becoming state folklorists and art administrators for, you know, um, uh, it was a way to see the field as a whole. He made me go through the entire University of Pennsylvania curriculum. <laughs> I read everything that, you know, I always remember that. And it was really tough and, and made me go to, AFS, you know, as part of my work, you know, and I have to say that I'm thankful for that because there was no way I would have known anything about the field Mm. um, formally, you know, in terms of, well, actually, my stepmom is a folklorist, Mary, Mary um, Twining Beard, but, but, um, and, and she, was she came into it from the civil rights movement and that was really important, you know. Um, but in terms of really getting into the field, um, being at the New York State Council on the Arts was um, was important 
um, not only to see the breadth of the field, but also being in a space to help uh, work with African-American community organizations. And we actually were able to put together um, a conference called the Arts of Black Folk mm. with Schomburg, with uh, my, um, unfortunately, deceased colleague, Deidre Bibby. Um, but that conference was seminal. We had all, you know, we had major, major African-American folklorists there. Uh, some of the people I've mentioned, you know, and, and, and um, uh, one of the things I'm proudest of, there were a lot, um, there's an organization in the Bronx uh, founded by uh, Madaha Kinsey Lamb, uh, Mind Builders. You told me about that. <laughs> yeah, well, she, you know, it was a cultural arts program that she had put together for young people in the Bronx. And at, she came to that conference and she met uh, uh, Beverly Robinson, Dr. Beverly Robinson there. And she and Beverly Robinson put together the Beverly Robinson um, Folklore, in, uh, I'm going to not remember exactly what it said, but the Cultural uh, Research Internship, mm. which was a way of having young people learn the skills of folklore and it's still going on. It's in, it's, um, gosh, it must be in its 30th year now, but I mean, it's really, really, uh, long-term. And, um, we also were able to put together a few conferences at the Schomburg on, um, on African-American culture. And, um, so, um, and that, you know, it was supported by New York State Council on the Arts at the time. Um, but those kinds of efforts, you know, we use the institutions that we work with at to do the kinds of things that they're equipped to do. What are some of the things that we could do? And is it realistic for the sustainability of recruiting and keeping uh, African, African-American, uh, uh, Indian, Carib folk into our discipline, whether it's in the public space or the academic space? Mm, mm. Um, I think we need to um, talk more about the field. We need to be um, to speak, I guess, as folklorists, you know, I think we need to encourage people to, um, in, in those public spaces, to recognize the importance of, of folklore as a discipline um, and that it's not to recognize that there are other black people in the discipline, like what you're doing, you know, <laughs> um, and, or people of color, you know, in, in general. Um, in other words, we need to claim the discipline. Uh, so I think that that can happen in a lot of different things, uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, what we write, you know, the kind of programs we put together, 
I, I really do believe in the idea of participatory research pro projects uh, where, um, you know, we're introducing young people or intergenerational people. I mean, with the Will to Adorn, uh, we had programs in churches, we had programs in community centers, we had, you know, we had all sorts of programs in museums. And um, so, you know, introducing, introducing the field in that way, um, as well as in schools. Yeah, I think that we need to, to talk more um, about, about what the possibilities are and, you know, not, not hiding the, 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 um, the elephant in the room aspects, you know, not hiding the, the issues, but saying, Hey, this is, this is a series of, this is knowledge and a series of technologies that we can use and that are important. And it's important that we tell our stories. That's yes. Yes. I, I, I agree. <laughs> um, one thing, and you may have mentioned it, but I'm just going to ask anyway. One thing that you would change about our feel and one thing that you love it the way it is. Okay. Hmm. Oh, this is a good one. Um, Because it's related to the other thing, I, I, to, you know, the, the idea of what I would change, I think that the outreach um, and um, the exclusivity of the field, I think we need to deal with. You know, um, it's interesting that most, until recently at least, most of the folklorists, the African-American folklorists are in universities and they're not a lot of public, there's still not a lot of public mm. folklore. And I think that there needs to be a lot more folks outside the academy. Engaging you know, people. Engaged, yeah, engaging people. Um, so I think that that's, that's an important thing. Um, and actually, I mean, I love the discipline. I love, you know, things that I wouldn't change. I mean, the, 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 um, when I come to AFS, and I mean, there's so many really amazing Session, so many different ways to go, you know, with with talking about folklore, and it's 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 one of those fields where um, um, you learn you can learn about you can learn about um, all sorts of things. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, you can study all sorts of things that you're interested in. You know, I mean, I, and I have you know again. Um, I, I've, um, the Folklife Festival, you know, being a curator at the Folklife Festival for so long, um, I've learned so much, gotten the opportunity to talk to so many people, um, uh, 
well, not only traveled, but even, you know, coming to the Folklife Festival. I wish that there were more folks coming because I think that when people come to the festival, um, they get an opportunity to talk one-on-one about culture, about expressive culture, about history, about ethnostatics, about all these things, that, and about cultural representation. That um, and, and hear it from many points of view, because it's not only, I think that it's global. It's not only about, you know, people of color, about uh, the culture of black people, but the culture the culture globally that we share, you know, um, I think that those connections are really, really important for us to learn. And um, those, one of the best ways to learn it is through um, the ways that we share the things that we create, whether it be sound, whether it be object, whether it be, you know, um, all the ways that, that, whether it be words, working with words, um, and stories. So, so I think that, um, I mean, these are the things that keep me so excited about, about the field. I mean, it's, it's great. You're brilliant. Uh, we, we, I just want the fans, the audience, and everyone, other scholars, to understand that we're talking, and you're in Senegal right now. <laughs> that's yeah. how real it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, you the, the last question you kind of answered in that last answer, so I do not want to be redundant. I, I'm going to thank you so much for your time as the African-American Folklorist of the Month, which, I mean, it's, it's just an honor to speak to you. I really appreciate everything you've done to, to make room for folks like me. Well, listen, I want to thank you and, and say that it's really an honor to get a chance to you know, speak. Um, and, um, you know, the work that you're doing is so important, uh, Lamont, that... Um, Pearly, that that um, it's so important to do exactly what we're talking about to make sure that you know we know that we're in the field to know that um, the field is a, an important one um, to listen to other colleagues uh, and and so I am um, you know I feel really blessed to to have had a chance to be in this conversation with you and thank you thank you very much you guys know what it is